Right, let me try again. <laughs> so as I said, over the past few weeks, then we've been looking at this concept of enjoying God, the fact that that's why we were created. We were created by God and for God. Each one of us were carefully created and fashioned for him to spend life with him, not just for these 70, 80, 90 plus years, but on into eternity as well. And so we've been having a look at some of the practical ways in which we can enjoy God right here and right now. Enjoying God through nature, enjoying God through silence and solitude, enjoying God through Sabbath rest, enjoying God through his word. And this morning, as we round off our series, I'd like us to have a look at enjoying God through one another. Uh, There are lots of passages that we could look at, uh, but the one I'd like us to consider comes from 1 John chapter 4, and we'll read verses 7 uh, through 21. John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who, lo- who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he's given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. So there's so much that we could look at in these verses, but let me highlight just three things for you. Uh, Firstly, in this passage, uh, we see the importance of community. Have a look again at verses 13 through 15. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. So community lies at the very heart of God. This is a Trinitarian passage. 
Uh, The word Trinity is not one that you will find in the Bible, but it's one that theologians use to describe uh, this concept that we see in these verses, that we have one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Trinity is, is so loving and so intimate that the law of love transcends the law of mathematics. It's the only case where one plus one plus one equals one. When he was on earth, Jesus said to his disciples, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And this mutual indwelling is captured by the Greek word perichoresis, which is where we get our English word choreography from. And so the Trinity is really a kind of eternal dance of joyful love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the moves of this dance are are quite interesting. The Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself, rather he brings glory to the Son. Jesus said in John chapter 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will bring glory to me. In a similar way, the Son brings glory to the Father. So Jesus prays in John chapter 17 and he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And in the same way, the Father brings glory to the Son. So at Jesus' baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, we hear the voice from heaven, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. There's this beautifully choreographed dance of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where each person glories in the others. As one writer puts it, God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit in a community of greater humility, servanthood, mutual submission, and delight than you and I can imagine. Community is at the very heart of God, and you and I are invited into this community to be held in the heart of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. It's the closest, most intimate relationship possible. And it's one that's not simply ours alone. We are invited together with other believers to form a community, a people, a family. Because community lies in the heart of God, God's plan has never been to have a group of disparate individuals love and enjoy him. He's built us to enjoy him together in community. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, God declares, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a companion for him. And so you have the very first community, Adam and Eve enjoying fellowship with God as he walks with them in the cool of the evening. After sin has marred and devastated God's world, you have God coming to Abraham and promising that he will make a people through him who will be a blessing to all the other nations on earth. And through the nation of Israel, God brings the Messiah who brings together people from every nation and tribe and language and tongue to form a part of a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that we see here in this life and continues on into eternity. 
So while our relationship with God may be personal, it's never private. God calls us into a community. He's called you and me into this community this morning because our life with him is enjoyed in community. Verse 12 is an astounding verse. John writes, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And that verse is even more remarkable when you compare it to what John tells us in the first uh, chapter of his gospel, where he says this, speaking of Jesus, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So when you put those two verses together, we can say, no one has ever seen God, but God's love is made visible through Jesus and through our love for one another. God's love is made complete in our love for one another. And this has two practical implications for us, which are our last two points. Firstly, or secondly, we enjoy God when we receive love from others. We enjoy God when we receive love from others. Some of you may be familiar with the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who opposed Adolf Hitler during World War II when many of the German pastors were going along with the Nazi cause. Uh, Bonhoeffer was imprisoned in the Flossenburg concentration camp and he was hanged just a few days before the Allies liberated the camp. He wrote a little book called Life Together about the church. And at one point in the book, he wrote these important words. He says, the Christ in our own hearts is weaker than the Christ in the word of other Christians. The Christ in our own hearts is weaker than the Christ in the word of other Christians. Seems like a strange statement, but Bonhoeffer is describing something very important that we've probably all experienced at one time or another. A little earlier on in John's letter, he speaks about times where our hearts condemn us. There are moments in the Christian life where our hearts condemn us. Perhaps we've fallen into sin, or we're struggling with doubts and discouragement. We feel overwhelmed. But then another Christian brother or sister speaks to us. Perhaps it's the pastor in the sermon on a Sunday morning. Perhaps it's a friend that we're having coffee with. Perhaps someone prays for us at our midweek Bible study. Maybe we're reading a Christian book or it's part of the worship service on a Sunday morning. And the words of that Christian brother or sister come to us from the outside and yet are stronger than the voice inside us. My heart is condemning me. And although the Holy Spirit within me is assuring me of the fact that I'm loved by God, I'm battling to believe it. I'm battling to hear that voice. And so God uses another voice, the voice of another believer, which is louder, and it's the same voice. Pastor Tim Chester puts it this way in one of his books. He says, God loves us through the love of Christians. He loves us in other ways, of course, supremely in the gift of his Son, but the love we experience from other Christians starts with God. And so the brother who speaks a word of comfort to you, the sister who bakes a cake for you, the family who welcomes you into their home, all are the hands and feet of God. 
When a brother hugs you, Christ is hugging you. When a sister sits by your hospital bed, Christ is sitting by your bedside. When a friend weeps with you, Christ is weeping with you. We experience and enjoy God through people's love for us. Every now and again, someone will say to me, I don't need to go to church. I can have church all by myself. Church is something that I hold in my own heart. And there are various responses to that statement, but here's an important one. Christ comes to us in the words and the actions and the facial expressions of our brothers and sisters, and we miss out when we cut ourselves off from Christ in this way. And thirdly, from verse 12, we see that we enjoy God by giving love to others. God's love is made complete in us when we love others. The the true measure of our spirituality doesn't lie in our church attendance or our Bible reading or our prayer, as vital as those things are. The true measure of my spirituality is seen in my love for others, and in particular in my love for those I find it difficult to love. Because actually, as one writer has put put it, I only love God to the extent that I love the person I love the least. (laughs) Look at verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And notice that genuine love is not merely a feeling, but it's seen in self-giving, sacrificial love, the kind of love that we find in God himself. Verses 9 to 11. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, there are lots of practical things that we could say about loving each other this morning. We could have a look at spiritual gifts, the gifts and abilities that God has given uniquely to each one of us to build up the body. We could talk about the importance of small groups, of getting together regularly with other believers to pray and read God's word together. We could look at the importance of church membership, of committing ourselves to a particular body. But let me look at this from a slightly different angle. And I want to speak about the importance of simply being present to others. Martin Buber was an Austrian Jewish theologian and philosopher and writer who died in 1965. And one of the most formative experiences of his life took place in 1914, uh, the year the First World War began. A young man came to visit him in his office. And Martin Buber describes the encounter like this. He said, one afternoon, after a morning of religious enthusiasm, I had a visit from an unknown young man without my being there in spirit. I certainly didn't fail to let the meeting be friendly. I conversed attentively and openly with him. Only I omitted to guess the questions which he did not put. Later, not long after, I learned from one of his friends that he himself was no longer alive. 
And that young man's suicide haunted Martin Buber. He felt incredible guilt, not because he hadn't managed to remove the young man's despair, but because he'd failed to be fully present to him. He'd been so preoccupied by his own experience with God earlier that morning that he'd failed to bring all of his attention to their conversation. He didn't turn to the young man with his whole being. Instead of genuinely listening, he brought a courteous but partial engagement. And this event, with a couple of others, led in time to Martin Buber writing his famous book called I and Thou. It's a book about relationships. And in the book, Buber refers to two kinds of relationships. On the one hand, there is what he calls an I-it relationship. In this kind of encounter, I think of people in terms of what they can do for me. I sum up their importance in terms of their education or their finance or their occupation. I see them as objects, as a means to an end. My conversation is distracted or goal-orientated. I listen, but my mind is somewhere else or I'm thinking about what to say next. I'm quick to judge people and only give them conditional acceptance. I want to change them to look a little bit more like me. My conversation is a monologue or a debate in which I seek to make my point. I withhold myself in the conversation and don't really share what's going on within me, my thoughts or my feelings. I'm closed. I'm unwilling to change. And to my shame, I have to admit that all too often I have an I-it relationship with the people around me, especially at about 25 past nine when the, you know, the, the, the computer isn't working and the, everything else is going on. I'm, I'm distracted too easily. An I-thou relationship, though, is the complete opposite of that. In his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pastor Pete Scazzero puts it like this. In I-thou relationships, we recognize each person as unrepeatable, an inestimable treasure, an image-bearer of the living God. We treat each individual as sacred, as one created from the very breath of God. Most importantly, we welcome their otherness, acknowledging how different they are from us. In other words, we don't try to get something from them or treat them as an extension of ourselves, the way we might treat an object such as a hammer or a phone. In an I-thou encounter, we come to the other without preconditions, without masks, pretenses, and at times without words. We're completely available to them, seeking to understand them. And so just a couple of questions for us that we should probably keep in mind as we go and interact with people now over tea and coffee or as we go into a week filled with people. I keep on asking myself, am I fully present here or am I distracted? Am I fully present to the other person, present to myself and present to God who lies between the two of us? Am I looking for Jesus in this person? Am I loving or judging? Am I listening deeply and intensely? One writer points out that being heard is so close to being loved 
that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. Listening to someone, really listening, is as close as you can get to loving. There are many ways in which we can enjoy God by loving others, but I would be great if as a congregation we could start practicing this one. I promise to try. I've put it in a sermon now. I'm going to be in trouble. You're always going to be saying, are you listening? <laughs> Let's practice just being present to others. Something very simple, but deeply profound and life-changing for others and in fact for ourselves. So, just those three points from the passage this morning. I heard about a Presbyterian pastor who had a young woman come to him and ask him to baptize her baby. This child was born out of wedlock. Uh, the father of the child had deserted her. And she lived in a small rural community where often women like this were shunned by the rest of the community. The pastor readily agreed to baptize the child. The lady came along to the church service, and at the appropriate time, she stood alone in the front of the church holding her baby. And it was only halfway through the baptism service that this pastor realized what an embarrassing situation it was because he came to the words of the infant baptism service where he asks, who stands with this child to assure the commitments and promises herewith made will be carried out? Who will be there for this child in times of need and assume that this child is brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? And he looked around and he realized that this young woman was by herself. She didn't have her parents there. She didn't have her grandparents there. There was no friend. There were no godparents. And so there was this awkward silence for a moment. And then the entire congregation stood to their feet and with one voice said, We will. The importance of community. God has called us into community, and his love for us is made complete in this community. We enjoy God by receiving his love through others, and we enjoy God by giving his love to others.